Today's reading is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. Well, um, this is a, a great morning. And I, um, for those of you sitting on the side, I always feel like maybe I should preach from the pulpit when we have the... Um, when we have these these candle things up, because I I you know I, Williams Arena is my favorite arena to go watch basketball games in. But um, you know you always kind of get obstructed seats if you're sitting in a certain area. So I feel sorry for you all if you're in, in obstructed seats. Uh, like Sarah Vermeer, can you see me right now? Like is this okay? All right. If that and Gordon, like if that's okay for y'all, then I think it's probably okay. And Eric, you know what what can we do? Okay. All right. I just I feel sort of bad and awkward that you're you're sitting over there. So I'll only make eye contact with people uh, in the center section here. Uh, and, and it's the last Sunday of Advent, and so as you notice, probably with the worship sets, they're becoming more and more kind of Christmassy or Adventy. And um, Amy and the band sang my absolute, probably favorite kind of incarnation Advent Christmas song this morning, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silent. And it speaks so much to the reality that is captured here in our passage this morning that is in the Gospel of John. And we're going to be with John um, all the way up through and even a little bit past Easter. And John's gospel is unique. Uh, St. Augustine is purported to have said, and with a lot, as with a lot of these quotes, you know, did he say it? Who knows? But it sounds good if he said it. It sounds cooler if he said it rather than like John Smith or something like that. But that the gospel of John, it's deep enough for an elephant to swim in, but shallow enough for a child not to drown in. The message being, the meaning being that, that this is a gospel, the theological and philosophical implications of which um, one could spend one's whole life 
uh, thinking through the implications of what John says, but that it's also, there's something so simple about it, so beautiful about it, that can even be grasped by a child. And John is different than the other three Gospels. If you remember from, I think it was Sesame Street, you know, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Well, if we line up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John is just different. The other three are called the synoptic Gospels, and that's just a compound word that means they kind of see with each other. They, they look at the story of Jesus in a similar way, but, but John just stands apart. He's doing his own thing. He's doing it in his own way. He tells the story of Jesus differently, beginning right here as we can see with the prologue. Mark starts with John the Baptist, you know, crying out in the wilderness. And Luke and Matthew, each in their own way, they, they tell the story of Jesus' birth. They, they start it around that. But John's story begins quite a bit earlier than that. He begins in the beginning. Now, in our, our, our fall series in the narrative lectionary, Matt had the privilege of preaching from Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, John chapter 1, they're both kind of those passages where you go like, there is so much going on here. What do I do? What, 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 what route do I take? Because you can't say everything, and, and it's a fool's errand to ever try to do that. Uh, but, but it's a question of what path are you going to take? Because this is like standing before, uh, uh, you know, El Capitan from the Yosemite Valley. Valley. This is, is beautiful, and you've got to, you know, try to climb up it. And so what route are you going to choose? And, and it's like, uh, what's his face? Alex, uh, what is it? Yeah, Hanel or whatever. Uh, the, fr the free solo guy. You know, if you've seen free solo, you're always like, I think this guy is going to fall and die, but they wouldn't be showing the movie if he actually did do that. I would have heard about it before. But you have this sort of like, you're feeling like this is very treacherous and scary. And you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Well, that's kind of how I feel as a preacher. Like, what route am I going to take through this? Because I, I want to say something that does justice to these words, but I don't want to fall flat on my face either. And so we're standing before something today, as with Genesis 1, something so majestic. You know, Genesis begins, in the beginning God created, and, and John begins, in the beginning was the Word. And, and so Genesis starts with the deeds of God. But here in John, we venture even into more kind of sacred territory with the being of God. And what John does is, is he connects this being of God, this divine Word, to Jesus of Nazareth. Now this was and is what has always made Christianity unique amongst the religions. Only Christianity makes such an audacious claim. And Christianity's critics, ancient and, and modern and everything in between, have always had a problem with this. Gotthold Lessing, G.E. Lessing as he generally goes by, like G.E. Smith from the Tonight Show Band, but G.E. Lessing one of the great figures of the Enlightenment, a German uh, in the 18th century. He, he was the son of a Lutheran pastor, and, and he struggled with the Christian faith. And, and he remarked that the accidental truths of history can never become the proof of the necessary truths of reason. And that was one of his axioms and his most influential sayings, that the accidental truths of history can never become the proof of necessary truths of reasons. He, he thought that universal truths... You know, things that could be held by every rational and enlightened human being were like mathematical proofs, something that was accessible to every human mind operating according to reason. 
And he said that between those universal and necessary truths of human reason and the, the contingent truths of history, even the history of Jesus was what he famously called, labeled, a nasty, ugly ditch. So there's the pure, universal truths available to reason, and then there's a nasty, ugly ditch and on the other side of history. And you can't cross one to the other. Claims about, for him, claims about God, about morality, about truth can never be based on history. Because history is contingent. You, 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 you literally cannot repeat history. As much as we have that saying, you know, history repeats itself, it doesn't. Sample size of one with every single historical event. History is disputable. As we see in our country, right, we wrestle with how do we tell the story of our country, and, 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 and we know that there's non, not one right way, that there's different ways to tell it, and, and so history is disputed territory, and history is, is ugly. It's filled with all sorts of nastiness, and so for Lessing, an enlightened mind, it, he can't cross over from, you know, rationality to history in search of truth without getting dirty. The Word became flesh then? No, for the enlightened mind, that was a ditch too far. God, the pure, pure universal spirit, pure universal intelligence, would never, could never cross such a nasty ditch like that, let alone pass through a birth canal. But John says, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the implications of our passage are clear. C.K. Barrett, who uh, was a New Testament scholar of the last century, wrote, wrote a great commentary on John. And, and, and he sums up, really, what John is saying in his prologue in just a couple of simple sentences. It could not be clearer and, and more distinct and more blunt than this. He says, what John is saying is that the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. That's what he's saying. There you have it. John refuses to let us consider that Jesus is merely the greatest human being who ever lived, though he would certainly agree with that. He refuses to, to let us deal with Jesus on any other terms than that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing truly what God is like. That's a remarkable claim to make. It's a difficult claim to make. It's, it's a claim that when you sort of boil it down is either crazy or true. And so with John, we, we, we fully understand that the gospel is either an intellectual scandal, a religious scam, or the very essence of salvation. But John says this, this light is the true light for everyone. It was not just the light for the, the, the Jewish people who were God's chosen. It's not just for the smart or the strong. He says, for everyone who believes, they have the right to become children of God. And so the claims that, that John makes, they're not measured. He puts everything out there about Jesus from the very beginning. And so in this gospel, we know that this is what we're going to be dealing with. A, a Jesus whose deeds are, are so bold, we can't evade them. A Jesus whose claims are so audacious, but, but we can't help but, but kind of cower uncomfortably before them. I am the resurrection and the life. 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the light of the world. Those are bold, bold claims for a person to make. What kind of person can make those? But I think that those statements actually are tame compared with what we read in, the, in, in John chapter 1, the, the, the two statements that are really at the heart of this chapter. And these are those. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then this other one. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And so with these two verses, we have uh, the most grandiose, actually, claims about Jesus and Ironically, at the same time, the most humiliatingly possible claims about God. When I say grandiose claims about Jesus, that much is obvious, but, but it's still worth unpacking. So, firstly, John equates Jesus with the word, which in Greece is, Greek is logos or logos. I say logos. It's like, how do you pronounce, the, is it the omicron, 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 whatever, you know, logos, logos. So, this word... For word, it's one of the most philosophically and theologically rich words out there. It's really the one word that John could have chosen that could contain so much density. Um, it's like Eric Jurdy was talking to him once about the best snack, and it's Cheetos, because it has maximum caloric density in that one snack, right? <laughs> maximum, all packed right into that one Cheeto. That's why there's something about a Cheeto. And if it's a flaming hot Cheeto, my gosh, extra, like you're doing extra. Well, the word logos is that, maximum theological caloric density packed in that one word right there, okay? And, and so that's what's happening here. And so, and so when John chose this word, he knew what he was doing because he's like, this is the kind of word, this word is so deep, you know, a thousand elephants could swim in this, could submerge themselves the Logos was from uh, the, the world of, of Greek philosophy. The, the, the Stoics, they loved this word because the Logos was uh, the, the, the kind of ordering principle behind the universe. And so this, for the Stoics, that explained to them the mystery of why this world is marked by order rather than chaos. Which is a good question, right? Why, does, why is it when I hold a pen out and I drop it to the ground, it always falls there? For the Stoics, that's the Logos that explains why there's order rather than chaos. And for Jews, uh, the Logos uh, was a rich word as well. It was God's speech. So in the beginning, you know, God said, let there be light. And so that's the word, that's the Logos, the, that God speaks and God decrees and things happen. The word was also the same as God's wisdom that we read about in Proverbs, where, where wisdom is, is this kind of quasi-divine figure who's present with God before creation, almost equivalent to a kind of stoic conception of the Logos, a, a plan and a wisdom, a providence behind creation. The word meant that too. The word was also a phrase that you could use to avoid um, anthropomorphism, in terms of, of talking about God, because that would get kind of embarrassment. If you're embarrassing, if you're a more philosophically minded person, you say, you know, uh, that, that with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, you know, God did this thing. We go, well, okay, we shouldn't really say that about God. Or, you know, in Isaiah, God says, by, by, you know, by my hand or by my, the strength of my arm, I laid the foundation of the earth. You know, that's a little embarrassing to talk about God in that way. And so, 
as some Jewish people were paraphrasing the scriptures, they would say, well, no, 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 it wasn't by God's hand that he laid the foundation of the earth, but by my word I have laid the foundation of the earth. And so the word then kind of stood in place as a, a mediation, a meeting agent between a holy, perfect, pure, spiritual God and his creation, which was decidedly not those things. And so for Jews and for Greeks then, the logos is how God is close to us. Now, if your head is spinning right now, or you're like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, I don't blame you. But remember, though I said these waters are deep, we will not drown in them. And an illustration of this relationship between the eternal you know, logos and, 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 and the incarnate logos in Jesus Christ, it's found in just an example from common speech. A word exists in your mind before you speak it, right? But they're both words. And in order for someone outside of that mind to know the word, it has to be spoken. And so the eternal word, the eternal logos, is is formed in the, the, the mind of God, as it were, always and forever. But that word was spoken when Mary conceived and bore a son. So it's this spoken word that reveals the mind, character, and and nature of the speaker. And so in effect, Jesus is God's spoken word, the one who fully reveals the mind, character, and nature of God. All that to say that whatever makes God God, the word shares in that. So as to say that Jesus shares in that too. And much of Christian theology since its inception has been our attempt to make sense of that most incredible of claims about Jesus because it gets to the very heart of our understanding about what kind of God God is and and what kind of human being Jesus is and, and what kind of religion Christianity is. Our best and our brightest minds have tackled it. Oceans of ink have been spilled explaining the truth and reason embedded in these claims. In the beginning, the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But for us, this isn't just a truth to be explored or pondered, but good news to be shared. Because we don't have to wonder or guess what God is like. All we need to do is look to Jesus. Now, as grand as the claims that John makes about Jesus are, as I said, he also makes claims about God that that are, on their face, humiliating. We could say that John exalts Jesus to the heavens, but that he drags God down to earth, to the dirt. Recall that God in Christ placed him on the wrong side of Lessing's ditch. The humiliating claim that Christians make about God is right there in in verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. That word flesh, it's a loaded word in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. But Isaiah said, all flesh is grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So why would the never-fading word ever choose to become like the ever-fading grass? New Testament, Paul contrasts, you know, life in the flesh and the spirit. 
And Jesus himself says to his disciples, who he says, come, keep watch with me, as he's praying in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's betrayed, pictured in that window right there. He's praying, he asks his disciples to keep watch with him, and they can't. They fall asleep. They fail him multiple times. What does Jesus say? He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the flesh is weak. And so flesh represents human frailty, human weakness, human vulnerability. So try substituting those words in verse 14. The word became weak. The word became frail. The word became vulnerable and dwelled among us. The God of the universe entered into his creation in all of its vulnerability. Not as a great king, not as someone rich and powerful, but as a helpless baby born in Bethlehem. If that were not true, it would be blasphemy to ever denigrate the God of the universe with such claims. But for Christians, the incarnation, the, the, the enfleshment of the word is at the heart of the good news. Because it means that in Jesus, God has taken on himself everything in this world, everything in us that is weak and frail and vulnerable. Gregory of Nazianzus was one of the ancient Greek fathers of the church. And, and, and it was an early struggle in the church. They go, these claims, it's too much to say that about God. And so somehow there had to be some kind of division in Jesus between that which was you know, divine and that which was human. Because God couldn't really have become that vulnerable and entered into it that fully. And so they said, well, Jesus had a, you know, a human body, but like a divine mind or something like that, or a d- divine will. They tried to parse up the piece of Jesus, pieces of Jesus to leave some part of God pure and untouched by the frailness of the flesh. And he wrote against that. And he said this, and, and it's so true, and it's one of my favorite theological statements ever. He says, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. Not assumed, not healed. But that which is united to his godhood, his wordness, is also saved. And so if the word did not take on the fullness of human flesh with all of its frailty, weakness, and vulnerability, then we have not been fully healed and not fully saved. And the good news is that he has. And more than that, that the word became vulnerable means that we can turn to God, not as some far-off deity who stands over and above us or who could care less about the dealings of us mortals, but a God who knows full well what it's like to be vulnerable. A God who won't just eventually save us from our sin and suffering. We have a God who understands fully what it's like for us to suffer, what it's like for us to live under sin's powerful sway. He knows firsthand the pain of existence. The agonies of loneliness, betrayal, abandonment, slander, struggle, mental anguish, grief, loss, conflict, frustration, anger, sadness, disappointment. He knows it. In Christ, God knows it all. And so let that be in our hearts when we turn to him in faith and turn to him in prayer. God knows. God cares. And because the word became flesh, God is present even in the worst aspects of our humanity. Now, I don't know about you, but that's good news that I need to hear right now. 
God knows what you're going through, not in the abstract, but in the, the realest way possible. He has assumed it, and so he will heal it. And so I think Advent, the season of the church year as we prepare for Christmas, it's about being reminded that even in exile, God is with us. And God doesn't wait for us to come home to him. He comes to us. He accompanies us on that journey. He, he, he guides us and he guards us. And every theme mentioned here in, in the prologue, John is going to go on and explore it at length. Light, life, witness, glory, darkness, belief, and unbelief. But as we go through John, the, the goal at the end, and, and John makes no bones about this, that he writes these things so that we would have faith and that we would have life in the name of Jesus. That we would believe that Jesus is who John says he is. That we would say at the end, along with Thomas the doubter, when he encounters the risen Christ, my Lord and my God. And then in believing we have life in his name, eternal life, yes, that's one of John's favorite phrases. And this is, you know, yes, glorious, heavenly life that we enjoy with God when we die, but it's a new life in his spirit that starts, in fits and starts at least, here and now. And so, as we go through John and we reflect on this passage, this is my prayer. Jesus, be our light in this world that is filled with darkness. Jesus, be our joy in the world that is filled with sadness. Jesus, be our truth in a world that's filled with lies. Jesus, be our life in a world filled with death. Jesus, let us see your glory on this side of history's ugly ditch because the word became flesh and moved into our neighborhood, one that is surely on the wrong side of the tracks. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.